So uh, today we look at revenge, vengeance. One of the things that we love in our culture is revenge movies, right? These are some of my favorites. Uh, and in revenge movies, uh, we love them inherently because we all want to see revenge. We all want to see it in real time. Uh, we want to see the villain or the uh not the protagonist, the antagonist. The antagonist get his just dessert. If it's done in an ironic way, you know, like uh, one of these movies that I had that's up here, uh, Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, it's a favorite of mine because it's the first actual real book that I ever read as a kid. And I remember being fascinated by it. You know, Edmond Dante's in that. Uh, in that story, uh, you know, becomes this persona that he's not and gets back at the other people in a very ironic, well-planned-out way. And you're just like, oh, you can't wait until the climax and all of that. Um, <clears throat> so we love this stuff. Um, and hence, we're told multiple times in the scripture not to take our own revenge. And even at the second coming of Christ, uh, where when I remember the first time I heard about this, you know, from a doctrinal viewpoint, which was really the only time I ever heard about it, was at the second coming of Christ, he's coming back in a white horse and we're coming back with him. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, how many heads am I going to chop off? And <clears throat> you find out that he fights alone. And... And it's probably because there's no one qualified to fight with him. And this is brought out by the scripture. It's not just the fact that God is the only one to qualify, qualified, is the only one qualified to take revenge or to exact justice perfectly. Like we can't. We can't bring justice perfectly on anyone. Because we're not perfect. But the real reason is, is that he's the only one who has authority to do it. We just don't have the authority. And so we love the revenge. But God says just wait, wait until the Lord returns. Uh, one of the things you don't generally see in a revenge movie is that Christ died for the villain. Now that's generally not brought out <laughs> because it would give you sympathy for him or her. Um, you know, imagine a movie in which the villain accepts Christ as Savior and then he changes. And in fact, there are some movies that are like that and they're wonderful. Um, but anyway, we're going to see here today that revenge belongs to the Lord and to him alone. And so, let's open up in prayer. We'll turn in our Bibles to, actually, we're going to start in Luke chapter 6 today. Luke chapter 6, let's pray and get ourselves ready to uh, hear God's word, which always means to have a humble mind, to be ready to uh, learn all scripture that we uh, take in. All of it is important. All of it is sufficient. And that through the Holy Spirit, we can learn all of God's will that he has revealed. And so with that, let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you uh, give us so many cautions and warnings. You tell us what to beware of. And this is one of them. You tell us to beware of taking our own revenge. And on top of that, not to just lay aside the desire for vengeance, but to actually reach out to our enemies and love them. To do good to them, to pray for them, to long that they would be uh, reconciled to you and to us. And so it's a lot different from the world, and that makes sense, as we have been noting, Father, and you so often reveal that your kingdom is not the kingdom that we're living in, that your ways are higher than our ways. And so, Father, as we long to know your ways and at times struggle to comprehend them, we turn to your word again and ask that through your spirit we would comprehend more deeply and therefore be changed. And as we continue to change, meaning growth in maturity, that we would find that resolution and that faith, because that's all it's going to take. It's going to take faith, even if we're scared to do it, to have the faith to reach out to our enemies and our loved ones and to forgive them and to hope that they forgive us and to know that you forgive all. And so to be like you, Father, and be merciful like you is what you command us. And so we ask in Christ's name that your word would speak to us, each of us, in our own understanding. In his name we pray. Amen. So vengeance is the Lord. Ultimately, this is at his return. At least that is, um, you know, it's it's certainly God acts in time uh, to enact justice. He's not absent from time. Uh, He's active in time and, and always has been. He controls history. And so it's not that there's <clears throat> no justice until the Lord returns. But the ultimate justice is that when he returns. And we're talking about the second coming of the Lord, not the rapture. Uh, the second coming of the Lord, he recompenses the deeds of mankind to his own children. As we see in the, our passage, and we'll read it again here in a few minutes, that we get relief. Uh, that the people of God get relief. At the rapture of the church, certainly the church gets relief. But same in second coming, those who are here who are believers are no longer going through a time of tribulation or the great tribulation that is a time of great, an enormous amount of pressure upon believers. And, and that will stop. And therefore, from that point onward, because Christ will establish his 1,000-year reign literally on earth, that the oppression of all believers will stop. And it will never happen again. There will be a final war at the end of the millennium, and then that is it. It is over. And it's judgment time, final judgment time, and then it's time for a new earth and a new heaven. So, until that time, we are tempted to take revenge, or at least, and here's the thing, we must all understand, and I think we do, but... It's my job to say it anyway, is that we must not even dream of it, right? Because the Lord told us, look, you think it, you did it. So if you hate in your heart, even though you don't do anything physically or verbally, you're still guilty of it. It's still sin to us. And so we must be careful 
Not to even dwell on revenge. That is sin to us. Not to even dream of the vengeance of our enemies. That is sin to us. We just put that in the Lord's hands. What we desire for our enemies is their reconciliation. And this takes faith. It's very common for people to want revenge. It's very uncommon for people to forgive, especially their enemies, and give grace as God gives grace to all. That's very rare in our time. But yet, for the believer, for every single believer, that's what we are called to do. Uh, I just finished yesterday, in fact, uh, I finished uh, Corey Ten Baum's book, uh, The Hiding Place. And at the end, uh, in, her, in the last chapter that she writes, there's a, there's a closing chapter in the version that I have that's, that she didn't write, but that kind of talks about, you know, what happened to them all and what happened to the family. But in the, <clears throat> the closing chapter that she writes, uh, she talks about, now, what, what had happened after she was released from prison is that she realized that God put a calling on her life to spread the gospel, and she did, and throughout the world, in fact. And she's giving one of these talks. She just finished giving a talk in Munich uh, some years after she was released. And she'd been giving these talks for many years. She used her experience in a Nazi concentration camp, the, the, the one that was designed for women. I looked it up. Uh, it's a horrible, horrible place. Um, she used that experience in a Nazi concentration camp as a background for the gospel. And she was very effective in her uh, witness of the gospel as, in, in, as an evangelist. And she spoke so often on how Christ died for all mankind and all who believed had their sins forgiven through the blood of Christ. Now, at this particular talk in Munich, a gentleman came up to her to thank her. And it was one of the guards at this prison. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's slipping my mind right now. But it was one of the guards. He was an SS guard at this prison. He was the one who guarded the showers as, uh, as they stripped the women naked and inspected them, quote-unquote. And there he was, unmistakable. And he held out his hand to her. This is after she gave her talk. He held out his hand to thank her, and he said, quote, How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. Oh, wow. So a man who tortured you in prison, she was there for, she was there for, uh, I think like two years, roughly, somewhere around that, over a year, um, tortured you, and here he is. Now, you probably haven't thought of him. Maybe you have in, in nightmares, but, and you just spoke at an event, and you said Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Christ has washed the sins away of all who have believed upon him. And then this man who tortured you comes up to you and says this, to think about it, just as you said, he has washed my sins away. <laughs> wow. So what would you do? Well, he held out his hand to her, and she did not want to touch him. 
Now, she relates in her book what she did. I thought I would pause here and give you the chance to imagine what you would do. And so I'll read from the book, from her account of this. She says, quote, And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Jesus, Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that had almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it was not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. And now, <laughs> when, you, when you read of an account like that, and that's someone who is put in that very position, one who claims and who loved the Lord and loved his word and believed what she had said. But then you're thrust into the situation where here is someone who you would rather spit on and kill. I mean, talk about the vengeance movie. Let's kill all the Nazis, right? But she says this. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? And she, so to quote her, and so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. And God requires this very kind of forgiveness. It's his forgiveness. It's his love. And he requires it of us. He requires it of us. Every one of us. And that's why we start in Luke chapter 6, because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is going to tell us exactly that. And remember that when he closes the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't give us the option. He doesn't give us the option of uh, evaluating his words. Now, isn't that odd? (laughs) When someone gives a great speech, it's generally critiqued. And so we say, well, this part was good. This part was all right. This part was great. This part wasn't so good. Or maybe the whole thing was good or it was bad. He doesn't give us that option. He takes it right off the table. He says, you do not get a shot at critiquing my speech. He says, he who hears these words and does them is a house built upon a rock. And when the storms of life come against you, when the storms of life come against you, you will stand. If you hear these words and you do them. He who hears these words but doesn't do them is a house built upon a sand, and his house will fall. 
And so it's required of us. God requires this forgiveness to us all. His forgiveness. And so I I looked for a picture of forgiveness. And of course I had to get a picture of Christ on the cross. This is Jim Caviezel on a cross. Um, But he's pretty much so far my favorite uh, actor who plays Jesus. Uh, was Robert Powell in, in uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth that saved me. <laughs> so I guess he's kind of my favorite Jesus actor, but, you know, uh, Passion of the Christ was just phenomenal. Um, Jesus said what? First thing he said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And talk about being tortured and beaten. No, and Corey Ten Baum is a sinner and she knows it. Not that she deserved anything that she got. She was a wonderful woman. None, none of them deserved what they, how they were treated. But Jesus, uh, uh, far and above all people, did not deserve the way that he was treated. Yet he forgave. And he took his place on the judgment seat for every one of us. God requires this forgiveness of us all because it's his forgiveness. So look what the Lord himself says in Luke 6.27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now what Jesus is going to challenge us with here in this particular part is what kind of people we are. He's not going to challenge us so much with what we do, although he's doing that. But it's, you know, anybody could, you know, say like Corey in that situation puts a big smile on. She shakes the guy's hand. And all the while in her heart, she's saying, in her heart, she's stabbing him in the eyes, you know. All the while in her imagination, she's imagining him dying a slow, miserable death. Well, she looks like she's forgiving him. See, any of us can play the act. We can act like Caviezel, acting like Christ. It's just an act. He's not Christ. But we're called to be like him. So, in other words, through and through, our thoughts. And so, he's going to bring that out here. He's going to ask us, what kind of people are you? So, again, in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. How many times we, and all through Christian history, have, you know, watered that down? And said, you know, we, it, this is what we do. We say, well, he didn't really mean that. You know, but how many times have you been slapped in the face? Like, it's not many, is it? If at all? I mean, <laughs> if someone did walk up to me and undeservedly slap me across the face, would I turn and give him the other one? You know, in the heat of the moment, probably not. But what am I supposed to do? You know, Christ means exactly what he says here. He says, and ultimately, I mean, if you were slapped across the face uh, or someone stole from you right in front of your eyes, would you give them more? 
And what he's saying is to absolutely do so. In other words, have a heart in which you do not take any vengeance. And, in, and as we'll see, all the vengeance is left to the Father. Just like he did. So, verse 30, Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes what is away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what you? You see how in the New American Standard, the what credit is that to you, which is fine. But the, you know, the Greek says what. There's the, the, uh, the word what and then the dative pronoun you. So in other words, what you? What, and it's a dative meaning, what to you or what in you? Like, or in other words, what are you? And if I, if I love those who love me, I'm no different than what I was born into this world, fallen and away from God, born a sinner. I'm no, di- I'm no different than anybody in this world. Because everybody loves those who love them. So if you love those who love you, what you? For even sinners, unbelievers, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what you? It's the same construction. What to you? For even sinners do the same. What kind of person are you? Are you my disciple? You know, Are you mine? If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what you? Same construction. Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. So we have, if you love those who love you, you do good to those who do good to you, you lend to those who you know are going to give it back. And I pat myself on the back and say, well, look, I love mankind. I do good. I'm a good doer. Do-gooder, I guess. And uh, and a uh, what? I, I lend, I give, I'm gracious, but I only give to those that I know are going to give back, and they're going to take care of my stuff before they give it back. You know, we've all lent something to someone, and then it comes back broken. <laughs> like, thanks, thanks a lot for bringing it back. Anyway, but Jesus said, this is all off the table for you now. Why? Because we're this new creature. I mean, that's why I have in the slide here, well, I didn't, I had, I took it out, but God requires this forgiveness of us, the new humanity, those who are in Christ Jesus, because we're to love as he loved. And so, he says, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and notice This is just so that we're a bunch of martyrs and a bunch of ascetics who are the scouring scums of the earth. No, it's and that's you know that's how the philosophers like Nietzsche and Freud and all those egg-headed losers and I I say that unapologetically that uh, you know they they saw with a great misunderstanding that you know what Christianity was was hail the loser. That's what they thought it was. They concluded that. Hail the poor. Hail the loser. You know, we should be weak and stupid. But we are weak according to the world's standards. 
right? What Nietzsche wanted, what Freud wanted, what Marx wanted, what they all want. Rousseau's another one, dummy. Um, who, who's, you know, they they want they wanted the strength of the world. That's what the people wanted Christ to do at his first coming: is to be king and take over, to be strong according to the world standards, to be rich according to the world standards, to be. Uh, good according to the world's standards, to be elevated according to the world's standards. But this world, as we've seen, this kingdom of this world is completely upside down. And Christ came to turn it right side up. And he, when he comes again, he will force it right side up unapologetically. But for us, we are to live right side up in an upside down world. And because of that, we're going to be persecuted. We're going to be ridiculed. We're going to be mocked. We're not going to be accepted. And so we're going to have enemies. But what are we to do to these enemies? There's 35 again. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. This reward. When it comes in many ways. Uh, you know, and if I were to like, and I thought about this, you know, could I come up with a list of rewards and I stop myself in my tracks immediately because that's not for me to do. You know, unless Jesus quotes the rewards here, I'm staying away from it. You're not going to know what the reward is until you do it. Now, I can tell you you're going to receive more of Christ than you will. You're going to, not, not positionally, but in experience. You're going to know more of Christ. You're going to know more of his love. You're going to know more forgiveness. You're going to know more virtue. And all of those things are great rewards. But they, you, you're not going to know that unless you do this. Hence, to know what it's like to live a life built upon the rock, which is Christ. And when the storms of life come against you and you stand firm, you're not going to know that. Unless you're a hearer and a doer. James says the same thing in his letter. So your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And Miss Corey at that instance replied that. He himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. In Matthew, Jesus says, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's the same line. And so that's what Jesus means. Not that we're sinless. We can't be. Not in this life. And Jesus knows that. But we can be merciful as the Father is merciful. We can be forgiving as the Father is giving. We can be in doing good as the Father would do good. Your reward will be great. Don't forget that. There is great reward in this. What it is, you're going to have to do this to find out. All right, heading forward to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting or as is only right, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each of you towards one another grows even greater or superabounds. Therefore, 
We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. Paul doesn't do this to many, if any others. I, 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 I don't think he does it to any others. We speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions with which, which you endure. So I wanted to reread that in light of this, be good to your enemies and be merciful to your enemies and lend to your enemies and love your enemies because the Thessalonians are doing that and they're enduring suffering because of it. In their endurance, their faith has grown and their love has grown. And so Paul then now in verse 5 moves to the thought of the second coming, second coming of Christ. He says, here is, there, this is is okay, but here is is better. Here is a plain indication or proof or evidence of God's righteous judgment so that you will be, and it's either so that you will be or for the purpose of, one or the other, considered worthy of the kingdom of God, of which indeed you are suffering. So this proof, this evidence the fact that you're living godly and being persecuted for it, it is a plain or uh, evidence, plain indications good of God's righteous judgment. That those who persecute you are going to be judged and that you will be given relief. In other words, you're doing the right thing. It's a plain indication of the worthiness of the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6, For after all, it is only fitting or just. The same word as Paul used, it's fitting for us to give thanks for you. It is only fitting or just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. And so the, the retribution is to the unbeliever. Those who don't, do not know God is a term, uh, a phrase that describes the unbeliever. And so what we're looking at today, as we've seen, is vengeance. Notice the word in verse 6 is repay. Now we have a, there's a lot to look at in this passage, um, and the particulars, by the way, of rapture and second coming and all of that, which is eschatology, will be coming up in chapter two. I'm saving it for chapter two, so that will be coming. But uh, here we want to look at the word repay, which literally means to give back in return or to deliver back, uh, and to and top. But do do nigh or or um, dunamai. It's uh, against or back deliverance. So it's to deliver back or to return. Now vengeance is the Lord's. This is clear. It's in both testaments. It's stated many times in Deuteronomy 32. And but in, in this case we have both recompense. This recompense or repayment is to both parties. Uh, there is resting eternal life in the kingdom of God, beholding the glory of God and the face of God for the believer. That is our recompense through Christ and his cross. Not of our works, right, but through his. And there's also affliction to the unbeliever who has rejected the gospel. And so 
<clears throat> these forms, both uh, the good and the bad, are uh, revealed in the Old Testament as well. And I want to look at a couple of passages for that. Let's go back to Isaiah 66. Both forms of recompense find echoes in Isaiah 66 and Psalm 137. So a quick trip to the Old Testament to see. Now, this is not a New Testament concept. What is a mystery in the New Testament is the fact that the Messiah, after his rejection, would have an interrupted period uh, from his first advent to his second advent. That was a mystery. The fact that there would be a kingdom, not a mystery. The fact that there, uh, the Messiah would suffer, not a mystery. The fact that the Messiah would be rejected, uh, it's hinted at. It's, it's not ex- it's abundantly clear. Uh, it's clear from our end when we look back. But uh, then also the, you know, the fact of the tribulational period, that is not a mystery. What was a mystery is the fact that the age of Israel would be interrupted without the covenants being fulfilled. The covenants are left open. And so they're not fulfilled to Israel when they reject the Messiah and that that there's interim period and that he will return. That is the mystery. So, But the fact that God would repay and recompense mankind for his deeds is certainly not a mystery. So look at Isaiah 66.1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Where then is a, where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. So in that first part, Obviously, God is the creator of all things, the creator of the earth. And he says to mankind, you know, what could you make for me? And if you did make something and say, here, God, this is yours. I made all those things that you made that thing out of. So and then he says um, at the second part of verse two, but to this one, I will look. Now, look means this is the face of the Lord. This means a, uh, a fellowship, a blessing, so to speak. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. So we see this, right? This, this difference between you know, what the world declares to be strong and powerful and wealthy, and yet what God considers someone who is worthy of of him looking to. This one I will look at. This is what God is looking for, and it's someone. It's a creature who looks to their creator, who knows that that creator is their savior and their Lord, and is humble and contrite in spirit. And when God speaks, they tremble at his word. You know, it, so that's an indication of the fear of the Lord and, and also an adoration of the Lord, an adoration of his word. To this one, God says, I look. Now, in our passage, when the Lord returns to those, they're the ones that are blessed with the kingdom. They're the ones who are um, who are given relief at the second coming of Christ. 
But, verse 3, he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. That seems odd, so we'll get the context as we move on. And he who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. And he who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. And he who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. So we have here the sacrifices. Right? So we have the killing of an ox, the sacrifice of a lamb, a grain offering, and an incense offering. And God says, it's as if when you offer me that animal, you might as well be killing a man. When you offer me that animal, you might as well be breaking an innocent dog's neck. You might as well be offering me pig's blood, which is an unclean animal. And you might as well be blessing an idol. But why is that? As they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. Notice the contrast to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. These are those who have chosen their own ways, not God's, and their soul delights in their own abominations. So I will choose their punishments, and I will bring on them what they dread, because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. They did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. So verses 3 and 4 have this unbeliever, or, you know, and, and believers can do this too, but I, I think this is the context here speaks of an unbeliever who has, is going through the motions of religion. And in their case in Israel, they're going through the sacrifices and the temple services and the feasts and all of that. But in fact, that they are delighting, as the Lord says, in their own abominations and they have chosen their own ways. And notice what he says, I will choose their punishment. In other words, I will repay. And in our passage, we see this at the second coming of the Lord. This is written 800 years before the birth of Christ. And yet, it is just as clear there as it is in our passage. When the Lord returns, this is going to happen. So, now, verse 5 is back to us. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake. And I pause it there. So, he says here, just like we read in Luke 6, there are going to be those who hate you and exclude you for my name's sake. In other words, because you're a Christian, because you're a believer, because you worship me. How are we to treat them? Well, who's going to bring the punishment on them? In verse 4, it's God. It's not us. And so we're patient. We treat them with love. And God is the one who will repay. And to us, we have to be humble and contrite in spirit and follow the Lord. All right, go to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. So these are the exiles. These are the Israel exiles, which you, you get in uh, the first few lines. Verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So these are the, the captives in Babylon 
who are weeping for Zion is Jerusalem. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. So the willows here, if you get the picture, they're the willows that are near the river and their harps are hung there. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So they're, you know, they're prisoners being bullied by Babylonians who are forcing them to sing the songs of Jerusalem while they're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and they long for it. And he says in verse 4, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. In other words, may I be not able to play my harp. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. May I not be able to sing these songs. In other words, it's not just singing the song. Just like getting back to Isaiah 66, it's not just offering the animal. As God says, if you're not humble and contrite in heart, which is just parallel to Psalm 51 that David writes, If you're not humble and contrite in heart, you can bring these sacrifices all the time, but you don't understand what they mean, and you're not worshiping me. Right? And so, to us, at the second coming of Christ, those who don't worship Christ, those who go through the the process of being religious but don't care of God at all or care of the gospel at all, they're all going to be judged by Christ in a very vicious way i mean it's wrath the words are wrath punishment uh as we saw in in our passage mighty angels flaming fire repay with affliction and dealing out retribution and in verse 9 the worst part is paul really emphasizes separating away from the face of the lord and the power of his glory So what, is the, what God is saying to us is like, look, this is the future. All of these people who aren't worshiping me, they're ridiculing me. And to hear, these would be truly believers in Babylon who are worshiping the Lord. You know, like, like people like Daniel who were over there, who are worshiping the Lord. And they're being mocked and ridiculed by Babylonians and by, you know, by unbelievers. And so in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raz it, raz it, to its very foundation. The Edomites were all for the Babylonians destroying Jerusalem. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. I mean, that is the, uh, when anybody writes about imprecatory prayers, Psalm 137 verse 9 is the chief one that they reference. Imprecatory means uh, God's going to get them, you know. And, And note, your little ones, your children dashed against a rock. Um. Yeah, that's pretty harsh. And yeah, I mean, if 
What about being cast from the presence of the Lord? That's pretty harsh. But it is the way it's going to be. And notice again in verse 8, which is to our point, uh, O daughter daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. And God used Babylon to discipline Israel, but Babylon is still guilty. They were guilty of sin and that God had did repay them. Where's Babylon now? He's long gone. They were repaid actually very soon after this with uh, Cyrus the Great, and which was moving on from that. All right, go to Romans chapter nine, uh, Romans chapter two. God is going to judge this world and it's going to be according to the deeds of the world. Nobody gets away with anything. Even for the believer in Christ, we are judged at the judgment seat of Christ for our deeds, whether they're good or bad. And so deeds are what's going to be judged. Now, we can't lose our salvation. I, you know, I don't know how people are going to feel or what or even what the recompense is at the judgment seat of Christ. I just know from from the scripture that it is going to happen. What is God going to So Romans 2 actually brings this out beautifully, but I don't want to read the whole paragraph for the sake of time. But look at verse 9, Romans 2, 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God, Jew or Gentile. God says, I don't care. It's what do you do? And, you know, thankfully, you know, as you're reading forward in Romans 2 and then in Romans 3, and you're like, good Lord, all of us are condemned by this. Especially in Romans 2, it doesn't seem that anybody gets away without condemnation. And then comes the cross of Christ in Romans chapter 3, where we're justified through Christ by faith. And now being set free, we see that God has allowed us to be born again and saved in a world that is going to be ultimately judged for its evil, ultimately judged for its badness, And we're tempted with that very evil and badness in our flesh and in the world around us. And God is saying to us, look, is it worth it? Is it worthy of you to pursue that which I am going to ultimately judge with devastation, punishment, wrath, and indignation? Should you be pursuing that? Are you worthy of that? And when... And and it's very clear in the Scripture that the return of the Lord is imminent. It could happen any day. And, you know, that time could come any day. So, and, and what God is saying, should you give yourself time to pursue that which I'm going to judge with wrath and indignation and punishment and, and, and 
you know, and other bad words. <laughs> Are you going, should you give yourself time and say, well, you know, why don't I just pursue that today and tomorrow I'll pursue God? How many of us have done this? Thank God that God hasn't returned too quickly. How many of us have said, you know, I'll follow you tomorrow, and then tomorrow comes and I'll follow you the next day, and that day comes and I'll follow you the next day, and years go by. And I think it's truly, truly the reason why God leaves his, the return of Christ in some vagueness. There is. When we see it, you'll see it. I'm just going to teach it right from the scriptures. You'll say, well, you know, that not every detail is fulfilled or filled in, and it's not. But what is, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, is it's imminent. That we know. Even those who don't believe in a pre-trib rapture have to acknowledge the imminency of the return, and so they try to explain that in some other ways. But that's not my, no issue to me. What issue is to me is that it is imminent. And we have, as God is saying, we don't have time. Time is precious. The time is now. Uh, Psalm 62, verse 9. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. According to his work. Proverbs 24:12 If you say, "See, we did not know this." Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And and does he not know it if who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? So the opening line of this is the very common excuse. Oh, I didn't know it was bad. You know, God, you can't recompense me. You can't render to me because of my work because I didn't know it was bad. And God's going to say, don't I know how you think every single thought? Do you think you can lie to me? Have I not given you a conscience? Have I not taught you the way? Have I not? Have you not heard, even though you haven't heard? In other words, you can't lie to me. That's another wonderful, clear indication. Don't put it off. Don't pursue that which God is going to judge. And don't lie to yourself. If you are pursuing that which God is going to judge, be honest. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. That is the road to recovery. But to lie to yourself. Boy, that is the pattern of every addict that I've ever known. is to lie to themselves. All right, go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16:24 Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes this is right at the end of Matthew, right? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's another I think it's in Luke where he says deny himself daily. You know, it's just to make sure that it's not deny myself tomorrow. It's deny myself now. And take up his cross and follow me. Taking up your cross means death. Death to the old self. And follow him. Now, he doesn't pull any punches here. He doesn't. He makes it so super clear and so simple. 
You know, it's, it's not so simple to do all the time, but at least it's simply put. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Getting back to our passages, the one who lives for... what? Well, let's hold on. Let me get it right from the prophet's mouth. Um... There we go. They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. Isaiah 66, Psalm 137, um, with, uh, How Blessed is the One. No, 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 no. Where am I? <laughs> Sorry, I lost my play. Ah, that was, let's just go with Isaiah 66. Do that again. Um, they have chosen their own way, and in their soul delights in their own abominations. What does the Lord say? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? That's your own way, right? Let's say you did it. Let's say you're the ultimate billionaire. You have all the money and all the power in the world. And he forfeits his soul. For, uh, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a very good question. What is your soul worth? For the Son of Man is going to, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels... Sounds very much like the language in 2 Thessalonians 1 with his mighty angels, and as Paul says, in flaming fire. And will then repay every man according to his, notice the word, underline it in your soul, deeds. It's in Isaiah 66, it's in Psalm 137, it's in Romans chapter 2, it's in Psalm 62, it's in Proverbs 24, and other passages as well. God is going to recompense according to deeds. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, to us, to the believer at the judgment seat of Christ, is going to be recompensed, same word, for our deeds, whether good or bad. So, you know, what we do is mighty important. God is going to judge it. Now, for the sake, I had a, a great example of revenge in the Old Testament, of which I have no time. So we'll just close with this. Uh, yes, God is going to equitably. I don't think I can say that fast. God will equitably. Wow, if you just go for it, it comes out. Sorry, there was a blank slide in between there. God is going to equitably deal with every person eventually. Eventually. It may be tomorrow. It may be at the second coming. It may be at the final judgment. But all are going to be dealt with. And for us as believers at the judgment seat of Christ, we're all going to be dealt with. It's a sobering thought. God wants it to be. I don't see it any other way. You know, people have tried to water this down for sure because, see, nobody liked judgment. <laughs> we, 
We even changed the name of the judgment seat of Christ to the evaluation seat of Christ. It just had a nicer ring to it. It didn't seem so, you know, like something you should be nervous about, right? Evaluation. It's just an evaluation. The Greek word is krino. Krino. It can mean evaluation, but if if you're going to translate it evaluation in 2 Corinthians 5, then then translate it evaluation everywhere else. Because that is the common New Testament word for judgment. And that's what we have here. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a frequently used word. So we're all going to be dealt with. When it comes to revenge, it is clear, especially in, in the passages we've seen, there's many more, where we have to leave vengeance to Him and to our enemies to those who hate us, to those who are hurting our loved ones. We reach out in love. Look, if you want to take revenge, God's not going to stop you. Um, You know, I I guess I should say here too, then I think about it, if if a crime is being committed and you need to like call the police, (laughs) you know, I think those those options are really clear. You know, people throw. I've had this even emailed to me when I've taught about this. This happened years ago. Like someone said, "Well, what if someone came into my house with a gun and he was going to shoot my wife and my kids?" I'm like, "Yeah. How? What? When did that happen? Yesterday? Like, how often does that happen? Why do we have to take the one in a billion? Oh, all right, our world's getting more violent. Let's call it one in a million. Why are we going to take the one in a million thing and base a whole doctrine on it?" If someone comes into your house to shoot your wife, shoot him. And let God sort it out. (laughs) If you're wrong, he'll he'll show you. You know, defend you have to defend your family. Of course you do. How often does that happen? Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about our everyday dealing. See, people bring up the little tiny exceptions so that they don't have to do this to anybody else. That's what they're doing. This is to your neighbor. To your brother-in-law, to your, you know, your boss who hates you, to that judge who treated you completely unfairly, to all the world, of which generally they are not slapping you on the face, but in some way they're hurting you. Our faith. And this is what it takes. Uh, another one, uh, there's another great book out, a uh, true story about Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was uh, his uh, B, I think it was a 24, B-24 crashed in the Pacific. He ended up in a, a Japanese concentration camp and the camp commandant, who they gave the name The Bird, um, beat him, tortured him mercilessly. Zamperini afterwards, at a Billy Graham crusade, became a born-again believer and years later looked up the bird in Japan, went up to him and said, I forgive you. That's a true story. And that, that guy who was an old man at the time, he didn't know what to do with that. But Zamperini had the love of God in himself and was able to forgive like if you if you read that I've read the book and see they did a movie out of it the movie's great 
the torture that that man went through, to be able to go up to the man who tortured him and forgive him. Same with Corey, Corey Ten Boom. She said, I could not forgive that man. I need Jesus' forgiveness. She prayed for the Lord's forgiveness. Correct. She prayed for the Lord's forgiveness and acknowledged that He had to do it in her. But then she didn't wait for the Lord to force her to stick her hand out and, and, and shake that man's hand. She, we have to do the thing. We have to do the deed. And trust the Lord. We have to trust the Lord. We have to ask Him for His power. Ask Him for His forgiveness. Prayer is perfect for this. God says, I'll give you what you ask. If you ask Him to fill you with His forgiveness and His love and His power, is He not going to do it? Of course He is. Corey understood she had to forgive that man. We must understand that we have to forgive our enemies. And leave the vengeance to God. Are there enemies in heaven? Zero. They're all gone in heaven. Whether they're, and if they're there, there's no more conflict. It's only now in time that we get this chance to do this. Hence, the imminency of the Lord. And here is the only time. Today could be the only day you get to do that. If the Lord came back today. Something to ponder. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you that through your spirit and faith, we can do what you call us to do. And not what we think it should be, according to our own likeness, but according to your likeness. May these things are hard to do to certain people. Show us your forgiveness. Fill us with your power and love that we may be able to do them. Your love comes through your word and through your spirit, but we're so often coming up short or getting ourselves in the way, not having the courage to do it. Show us how. Guide us to pick up our crosses and follow our Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.